Praise the Lord. So today I want to speak to us together on this theme, the black family identity, the black family. You know, finding our identity is an important thing for our flourishing because many times in life we're stymied by what other people think we are or who they think we ought to be. And in order for the black family to thrive and to flourish, it needs to go back to its roots to understand how we define ourselves. Because it doesn't matter what you're born into, what family dynamics you're born into. Our individuality in those fa family dynamics matters. It matters to God because it is God that places us in the, in the families that we were born into. We don't choose. We never get to choose our parents. We didn't get to choose our race. We didn't get to choose the economics that we were born into or whether our parents were educated or not. These are, uh, are out of our control. But in the long run, we need to know our identity. Not in just our family, but who God says we are. And I believe that the black family today needs to return to those places of foundation that shaped us and in the culture that we belong. You know, many narratives have been given to us about what family ought to be. We get the narratives about family identity from a bourgeois class of, of people who tell us that this is what a real family is. A mother, a father, and children. Not everybody will have a husband. Not everyone would have children. But I guarantee you that God has created us for much more than just our families. You know, dominant class gives us this false impression of the ideal family, which was a North American image that everyone tries to, es to aspire to. Many of us grow up watching shows like Father Knows Best, <laughs> The Brady Bunch, and Leave It to Beaver, and, and Harriet, and, and, and Ozzy, and all of those shows. And some ways we don't realize it, that the dominant culture can sometimes frame the images of what we think a real family should look like. And then came along the 70s, 80s to the 90s, where we begin to see images now of black families. Black families almost to some degree portraying itself to the previous shows. We said we wanted representation and we got representation, but then we had shows that even though there was some kind of a ethnocentricity to them, like good times and what's happening, you know, set in the Chicago uh, neighborhoods, then came along the shows like the Crosby shows as the ideal of family life. And then Family Matters and Fresh Prince of Belia, you know, in rich neighborhoods. Oh, that we would aspire to have homes like this. But the majority of blacks did not live like that in reality. And all of these images that we, we begin to coin to identify what the family looked like entered into our psyche. A new ideal for the black family, all attached to the great North American dream. And I have to say that when we arrive at these places, it's kind of like, oh, you know, I have the house, I have the car, and now I have arrived. I am part of that big dream of success, to climb to the top, to become educated, to have ownership. And we begin to prioritize these things to shape our new identity, even at the risk of forgetting who we are as a people. And I'm not saying that anything is wrong with this, bear with me. But along the way to these elusive, to this elusive top of the ladder, 
It meant that blacks would have to work three times as hard to accomplish these dreams, meanwhile neglecting our family life, our children, and dear I say, our faith. We would have to we would have this need to increase our output. We would need to create space for, for new things at the cost of family life. And many of us would have to leave our families behind to adopt this new self-centered individualistic lifestyle in North America. I remember my early years coming here how much I worked, sometimes two, three jobs. Yes, to make ends meet, but sometimes at what cost? At what cost do we strive to get out of certain neighborhoods and to make a way for our family? What is the consequences? And you know, there's nothing wrong with all of the above. Those are all noble ideals. But somehow, in all of these, we find that these things cannot mitigate family breakdown and divorce and loneliness and mental breakdown, detachment, violence, and even in our time, homelessness in our communities. What if in our pursuit for the ideal family, we have misplaced our priorities. What if we were created for much more and with purpose to serve beyond the walls of our private family life? What if the traditional family systems that we all aspire to is not the identity of what black family and needs to be? What if? We are all from different systems. And I reflect back on my formative years, growing up in an extended family dynamics. Grandparents, great-grandparents in fact, aunts, uncles, cousins, and some of these were the most um, amazing situations because some of the people that we were calling aunts and uncles, we discovered years later that we weren't really related to them. It's like everyone in your town or village was family. We called everybody auntie, as long as they were older folks. And it took us a long time to clarify who was true family in sense of blood and genetics. As a child, if you were unhappy or going off course, someone is about to notice. Someone will notice. And in some ways, we at the time felt they were nosy and getting into a business. But they were raising us up. They were giving us... Um, Mentorship, it may not always sounded good to our ears, but they loved us, they wanted to support us, and most importantly, they wanted their children and their offspring to not repeat the same mistakes that they made in life. They wanted to guarantee that we did better, that the next generation would learn to read and write things that they were not able to do. They wanted to make sure that we aspired for much more and, and bigger. And so it may, they may not have necessarily taught us with books, but they modeled what they wanted us to know. You know, my grandfather was deemed by the outside world as a grumpy old man. But to me, my grandfather was, I saw the other side of him. I saw the man who in his formative years was raised in the church, but had become an agnostic. He had departed from his commitment to Christ. He did find his way back in his 80s and was even baptized back into the Adventist church after an amputation. But what I remembered about my grandfather was that he was innovative, loving, and kind. People did not know that this was the man that when we were 
when we were selling provisions and staples in our backyard. Especially on a Friday evening, he would buy things wholesale. And he would say to us, pack up some, some things and chicken and rice and flour, whatever it is, and take to Mrs. So-and-so because they have so many children. My grandmother was always sewing things for people because she was a seamstress. And I watched in my own family how my grandmother had a little book she kept of people who purchased things and she would write in the book. And sometimes my grandfather would look at the book and he would say to her, Ernie, just strike that off. They, you know they can't pay you. They wouldn't be able to pay you for that. And those same people, they would be released of their debt. I watched sometimes on a Friday at the gardens when my grandfather would be paying the workers. And then he would say, take whatever you want to take home to feed your children. And people would pick things, peas or, you know, carrots or whatever, and they would take home for their families. That was a side people did not know about because he, he created this aura of toughness. I later moved to live with my mother and, and my mother's family. And I found the same giving tradition, always looking out for the neighbors giving, advising, counseling, and, and, and looking after those in the community. I remember my mother telling of a woman who patronized her store. And that the woman said, the only reason I shop at your store is because I remember how your grandmother fed us and took care of us when we were children. I remember one of my neighbors coming down with rheumatoid arthritis and, and my mom was concerned about her and she said, you know, we, we should help her and do what we can to, to help her out. And, and, and sometimes we would take food over. We shared. You know, you had a papaya in your yard. People could come and just ask for it and pick it. We grew up in, in that kind of a community environment. I remember one day arriving at home and my mom said, I don't know what you're doing at the hospital, but this man came by and said you, he was your patient and he bought all his fruits and, and vegetables as a thank you. This was the environment I was raised in. You know, my own father studied in Canada and was one of the first chartered accountants on the island. Bit of an economist as well. And on weekdays, he was the consummate, well-dressed accountant. But on the weekend, you could find my father sitting in the market, bantering with the women, selling stuff from his father's gardens, and just having fun fraternizing with the people. And this was part of, of the identity that we were created with. In the, in the Caribbean, to be community-minded people. And at the heart of living out the identity of our people was the reminder every Sunday when the church bells would ring that it's time for church. And the people got dressed in their Sunday best and eagerly went off to church. This was part of our identity. And it wasn't just on Sundays. Faith played an integral role in, in, in shaping the identity of a Caribbean people. The daily reminders at the start of your day, every day in school, our voices and our hearts would ring in song when morning gilds the sky. Our hearts awakening cry, may Jesus Christ be praised. In all our work and prayer, we ask his loving care. May Jesus Christ be praised. This is how we began our mornings at school. And as we prepared to return home in the afternoon, we would sing the day thou givest, Lord, is ended. 
The darkness falls at your request. To you our morning hymns ascended. Your praise shall sanctify our rest. This was a, a community of intense faith. It was in our daily routine. Like the children of Israel, they were told when you come out of Egypt that they would daily preach to their children. They would write it on the doorposts of their homes. When they walked along the way, they would tell it to their children. I remember listening to my grandmother every morning, every day. She would sit outside under that tamarind tree with her big wash basin. And as she's doing her washing with her hand, she would be singing, Oh, Beulah land, sweet Beulah land, upon the highest rock I stand. I look away across the sea where mansions are prepared for me. I grew up in a faith-filled environment and it shaped my identity. Was my life perfect? Far from it. Like the one in five girls, I too suffered things that I don't want to talk about today. But I want to say that in those moments when I was walking through even the hard times of my childhood and of my life, I find refuge in the Methodist church. In that little library, I was able to pull books that informed and shaped my identity. Books about Moses in the bulrushes. Books about Daniel in the lion's den, David and Goliath, Esther, Ruth, books that made me realize that with God, all things are possible and that my life had a purpose. I found an identity, not just in my family, but in God. And, you know, when our identity is shaped by God and shaped in faith, it doesn't matter what you experience in your life. That will anchor you, ground you, and bring you back to sanity and a place of refuge. Our identity was shaped by a culture of faith. The markers of slavery may never leave us. But however, when God enters those spaces, whether you're gathered in school or church, in the teaching and the everyday extension of your family and community, it makes a difference. Not in private enclosures that we come home to, but in the everyday extension of the community in which we were, in which we evolved. You know, before TV and technology, our life revolved around the church. The church shaped us. It is at the church we learn to lead. It is at the church we learned. It is in those moments when we heard stories and we learn to animate. We learn to, to, to recite poems as little girls. I remember my first poem. I think I was probably between three and four. I remember the fuss that was made about me because it was home family garden week where people would plant flowers and, 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 and show off and have competitions. And I remember my grandmother making me a little dress, white dress. And she embroidered vegetables like carrots and cabbages all around the dress. That was going to be the dress to perform for the festivities of that week. I remember the poem. I had a little garden. My daddy made for me, oh, what a garden. And I remember the, 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 the applause as I recited that poem. I remember how people spoke for weeks about this little girl in her applique dress and how well I performed. These were life-transforming opportunities that I had as a child. Played a big role in developing us and developing our identity. But you know, you could, you could come from the most idyllic of life, 
and perspective. Your life can change and shift and you can even lose your identity and your sense of self. This happened to me as I migrated. To say that I had a culture shock when I arrived in Canada would be an understatement. And to tell you the truth, I was quite depressed actually. To see how disconnected and closed people had become, even Caribbean people, was quite shocking. I wrestled with this self-centered culture, the structure of Canadian society. At one point, my husband and I even discussed returning back home to our island. I became detached after the birth of our son, and my husband kept apologizing for asking me to come and join him in Canada. My true identity had to be linked to something bigger and larger than what Canada had to offer. It had to be something that transcends being married and motherhood and all the things that going abroad promised. And I remembered my father's words to me when I was packing up to come here. Why are you going to the white man's country? Because you see, he had many job offers when he came to Canada and he turned them all down to return home. I struggled to assimilate and embrace Canada. I refused for years. And this is my experience. This may not be everyone's experience to call Canada my home and native land. And I wonder how many people sang this anthem, Oh Canada, my home and native land. And I often thought, are they really calling this place their native land? This is, this is part of the conundrum of migration. How much do you embrace without losing your true identity and yourself that has been shaped in another land? I refused for years to call Canada my home. If I was a true patriot at 22 when I arrived here, it would not be to this land, I swore. I would never leave Antigua. Physically, yes, but not mentally, not emotionally. And as I kept digging a, a deeper hole for myself <laughs> in, in terms of assimilation, I remember my husband saying to me, where's the girl I fell in love with who's adventurous, who is uh, free-spirited and talented and versatile and, and full of life? And after one of our deep conversations, my husband told me something that I can share now that I think was the important um, factor in me regaining some perspective on what I felt I was losing through migration. My husband said to me, I don't know what you think the expectations of you are for marriage. But I don't want you to be here to cooking and cleaning and doing all the typical role-based designations that are put on a wife. He says, I want to watch you soar as high as you can fly. I don't want to clip your wings. I don't want Canada to diminish you for who you are. I want you to fly, fly high, and I want to watch you soar as high as you can fly. And my job is to lift you up and help you to spread your wings. You see, he saw something in me that maybe in that moment I did not see in myself. And I realized then that I was trying to fit into some kind of an unspoken mold of gender designation prescribed by maybe the church, preachers who tell you what a wife place is, or just society in general. My husband became my liberator. 
And I've lived in, 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 in homes like my early years with my grandparents. They were married. I lived with my parents. They cohabitated for a time. But yet, this whole new definition of family and marriage was something that I had to shape for myself. We had to find our own identity. And it was necessary because our journey was going to be different from anyone else's journey. When my husband realized that I wasn't flying, he says, okay, we're going to make some decisions. You need to go back to school and continue your nursing. It meant going back to school and starting over. So I went to college and I graduated. But along the way, I had a very ill son. And there were times when I would rush from campus where I was studying to the sick kids hospital. And I would be studying and doing assignments right beside my child's sick bed, heartbroken and most often alone. It was a social shift for me. Being married with a disabled child, school, work. And I often said to a lot of young people, we did it all together. We got married, we had children, we went to school in the midst of all of that. And it's only because of the fact that we knew who we were that we could do it. And everyone else around us, we just couldn't fit. Everyone seemed selfish. They seemed cold. And we were left feeling isolated. I was feeling depressed most of the time. And, you know, this transition as a black immigrant required a strong sense of self and constant affirmation from a wonderful husband that God blessed me with. I remember having discussions with others and in, even in my social studies classes of how when we migrate and we come here, assimilation needs, people need to be supported even in assimilation. It doesn't happen naturally. We lived in, in, in communities where you, you, you were told to mind your own business. <laughs> And soon we learned to mind our own business. We would enter our homes and ignore our neighbors, quickly closing our apartment doors, turning the lock behind us. We entered the elevator and we looked everywhere except at people. We would look at the floor, at the roof, at the buttons, and not look at the person beside us because we were being conditioned to isolate people. We learned to sit on the bus and train our eyes and not to smile or greet others as we did on the islands. Because we know that if we did, people would think we're strange and not trustworthy because we're smiling. And after a while, you lost your smile in public. The church attendance did very little to soothe our pain, my pain. We attended church. We attended a black church. We didn't feel like we fit. We attended a, a Church of God congregation with some German folks and a few black people, and we didn't feel like we fit. It didn't work. We attended the Pentecostal churches, the bigger churches, the smaller churches, and we realized that community is more than just showing up on Sundays. The church is the family of God where like-minded people come together in the unity of spirit, in the bond of peace. The church family is a place where we minister to the needs of the individual and, and that marital status, education, wealth, and houses, and white picket fences cannot meet those needs. The black family has lost its way when it came to this country and abandon the church, it is so easy to set our minds on the wrong place when we look for fulfillment from life in the secondary things. We push God aside.
And I believe part of the issues that we have created for ourselves is because we have lost our true identity grounded in our faith. You know, last week we looked at the children of Israel's journey out of Egypt and how God instructed them to worship God on a daily basis and obey his commands. And as the family of Jacob would soon realize that if God was not first on their list of things to do, if they did not make God the primary focus that he called them as a family to focus on, that they will repeat being in bondage. The first was the most important thing of the nine commandments. The first commandment of the 10 that was given to Moses was I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery you shall have no other gods before me Exodus 22 to 3 now you may say to me Pastor James but are we talking about Baal and and Azariah and all these other gods but do you know that our lifestyles can replace God? Our children can replace God. Our spouses can replace God. Our acu ac ac you know, acumens and our acquisitions can replace God. Anything that we elevate before God is a God. In other words, God is saying, Put me first. Worship me above anything or anyone else. I have created you. I have brought you out of Egypt. I have delivered you. And I alone are to be your God. And no one or anything else comes before me. I am your highest ideal. I am your greatest desire. Amen. The rest of the nine are easy to follow if we live up to the first one. If we make God number one in our life experiences, in our journey of, of life. If we make God number one, we will not have any desire to break the other nine commandments. We would not have any desire to put others above God. The thing is, is this, when God is number one in our lives, he brings joy and peace into our lives. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. The thing that plagued the children of Israel and still plagues us today, not just black families, but families in general, is that when we came out of slavery, like the children of Egypt. We desired the things of Egypt. We desired the, 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 the leeks and, the, and, the, and the, the garlic and all the good things that's associated with Egypt. And this is what happens to many of us when we came out of slavery. We're focusing on what, what the dominant culture has. And we're pursuing that. And, and, and nothing is wrong with industry and, a, and acquisition. But when these things become the primary reason for our being, we will leave a part of ourselves behind. The children of Israel had to be reminded over and over that God is a jealous God. And that if we create idols of any kind, of any form, judgment will be visited upon them and upon us. And not just on us, but on our children and our children's children. The children of Israel missed the mark when they failed to put God first. And while gen a whole generation of them were moving through the wilderness with Moses, God said, you will not enter the promised land, including Moses, because you have failed. They died off in the wilderness 
before they were able to get to the promised land. The rest of the way, they settled among the peoples and in so doing, sometimes they lost sight of who they were. They lost sight of their identity. And as a called out people of God, they put God in second place. And this led to further captivity and God allowed the Assyrians to capture them and punish them. They had prophets, they had teachers to remind them of who they were. And yet they chased after other gods. The gods of materialism, of gods of lust and avarice and injustice and every kind of sin. And then God allowed them to be taken into exile again in Babylon. And they spent 70 years in harsh bondage until God raised up the Persian conqueror named Cyrus to set them free. In the long run, it doesn't matter what our family looks like. Our identity cannot keep us free. Our identity is not this you know, defined by our education, by what house we live in, by what car we drive. If as a people, we maintain our faith and our identity as a called out people of God, if the children of Israel had done that, they would have been much further ahead. God had to raise up prophets to bring hope to them in exile. Isn't God good? That when we walk in obedience and we mess up our lives, he's still our savior. He'll still rescue us. He just loves us. He loved his people. He loved them with an everlasting love. There were times when God wanted to give them up and he said, oh, I can't give you up, oh Ephraim. God, you know, God is kind of like a parent. Sometimes it doesn't matter how bad our children are. We will run after them. We will want to bring them back into our lives. I love how God brought, raised up people like Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and other prophets. That when the children of Israel were in exile down in Babylon, Ezekiel heard from God and he's like, what? There was a proverb that says the father eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge and God was saying the reverse is going to happen and Ezekiel was, was awakened to this hope of eventual return home for the people of Judah and when you draw a parallel with the black family it would seem to me that the black church the black church in our community played a significant role to bring hope to a people of slavery and colonialism. It was said that the white slaveholders and the planters did not want the slaves to learn about God, this one true God. They did not want the slaves to get salvation because they knew that if the slaves really learned the truth about God and about Moses and about Jesus and about the prophets, that it would inspire them to want to be free. You know, I grew up in, in the Methodist church in Antigua and there was a, a slaveholder by the name of Gilbert. And it, the story is told that John Wellesley came down from England and, and visited Gilbert on his plantation and he was amazed to see the slaves engaging in the ministry of the Methodist Church. And he thought this was a perfect model to take to the United States and it kind of worked for a time and then it didn't. But some of the slave masters allowed their slaves to preach and to become part of the church. And yes, it was Christianity. And that sense of identity that the slaves receive from reading the word of God, 
that inspired them to press and to push for their freedom. History bears witness to this fact that most black abolitionists like Harriet Tubman of the Underground Railroad fame found God and it inspired great courage in her as a young woman to set herself free and to set her people free. In a documentary on Harriet Tubman, the commentator stated that the Queen of England gifted Tubman with a shawl and a Bible, a Bible she could not read. And many of our great-grandparents, they couldn't read, but they knew the Psalms. They knew the Word of God. They could, they could, they could repeat what they heard the ministers say. And they, they, they literally internalized the Word of God. Harriet Tubman was used of God. She became one of the primary figures and in history in terms of the abolition of slavery. Why? Because she knew her identity in God. God became her number one reason for living. And that gave her courage and love for her fellow slaves. She literally did what Jesus commanded when he told his followers that they must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow him. Those who want to save their lives, Jesus said to them, will lose it. And those who, who would lose their life for my sake will find it. What does it profit them if they gain the whole world and lose themselves? What does it profit us if we gain the whole world, but we lose our true identity in Christ? Harriet Tubman is called the Moses of the South in America. And in spite of many hardships and beatings and, and trials and, and all that she went through, this woman of God literally laid down her life for her people and lived to be in her 90s. The biblical model for family is not static. And if we look at Jesus' ministry, we see a clear placement of the family, not as the primary role for our life. It is not the wedding band that gives you your identity. It is not having children that give you your identity. It is not what you've accumulated and acquired that gives you your true identity. It is not where you live and a car you drive that brings you fulfillment and joy. It is in Jesus. The world is not that family that was ordained to be the primary vessel for God's mission. It's you. As an individual, God calls us as individuals. Yes, he puts us in family systems. But at the end of the day, we need to know our true identity in Christ and know what God has called us to do. Yes, family is God's plan. He started it. But we can never elevate our family above God. We must always remember that whatever we have, whoever comes into our life, it's by God's design and for God's purpose. You know, at age 12, Jesus cut loose from his natural family. And when they found him some days later in the temple, they were, were somewhat angry and upset with him that um, he had done this. And in a way, he kind of disowned them. He said, why are you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? That I must be in my father's house? Jesus is saying, I live with you, Mary and Joseph, but this is my home. This is my true house, the temple. 
Family ties are important, yes, but I have found after migrating to Canada that as much as we may be in community with others, they are not the true value and meaning of our life. In another exchange, we see Jesus giving the template of how he identified God the Father. as the first thing, the most important thing than his own fleshly family. Not family, the church and God last. That's how most of us structure our life. Me, myself and I, my little family. Then somewhere in there I may make time for the church and maybe occasionally God will come into the picture. But Luke writes a, a bit of a narrative about Jesus and his family. His, they said, then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside waiting to see you. But Jesus said to them, my mother, my brothers, are those who hear the word of God and do it. Jesus is here making a profound statement that the true family is a spiritual family. And when we're united with other believers, we are the family of God. New family dynamics. I once read a, a, a portion of the book from uh, Rick Warren on the Purpose Driven Church and he, he made a point that I think ties into this. He said, your spiritual family is the only family that will last through eternity. When you get to heaven, it's the only family you're guaranteed to see. The ones that are born of Jesus and of the water and the blood. You may look like the Brady Bunch or the Cosby family. But if Jesus is not the head of your home, then that family could easily become your idol and also a source of your pain. Jesus signed up 12 men as they were traveling disciples. And as others sought to join him, they found out that they had to put other businesses before the kingdom first. This, this mission was supposed to be their new identity, but they weren't quite ready. And in another part of the narrative, Jesus says to them, do you think that I've come to bring peace to the earth? I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, and the one's foes will be members of one's own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find a life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. In another passage... Some others were feeling inclined to sign up for ministry. Would you sign up after Jesus says that to you? Would you want to sign up when Jesus is saying to you, look, I'm more important than your wife. I'm more important than your husband. I'm more important than that child. Would you die for me? <laughs> they wanted to be in mission with Jesus. But at the same time, they were focusing on their own stuff. And as they were walking along the road, Luke writes in chapter 9, 57 to 62. 
A man said, I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus. <laughs> Anywhere you go, I'll follow with rejoicing. Jesus says, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But this man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. God is not going to be taking second place to your priorities. Did Jesus come to break up family systems? Not at all. Does Jesus not care about our material and social needs? Not at all. But Jesus cares about how we prioritize those things in our life. He cares that at the end of the day, our agenda is not family, church, God, but God, church, family. And his disciples learned that. Many of them may have been married. But when Jesus called them, they gave up profession, family life, and they went out into, into all the world to preach the gospel. And they were faithful in community to the church. In fact, they made sure that the needs of everyone was met. There was no selfish endeavors among them. They had everything in common and they took care of each other. And when Jesus was ready to leave this earth, he realized that they were gonna face harsh persecutions for the kind of life that they were living. And he promised them that he would send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will be their help. He would not leave them as orphans. Those who love me will keep my word and the Father will love them and we will come to them and we will make our home with them. Hey, our true home is not the ones we build with our family. Our true home is with God, God the Son. God the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus has promised them a presence that will always be with them. The family you inherited on this earth is limited. Before you turn around, your kids are grown and gone and making their own families. Or your spouse dies. Or even your children die. What do you do? Your identity is not wrapped up in your family. It's in God. Family is important, yes. They help our human flourishing. But they are temporary. They can make you feel good and loved and cared for, like any other things in this planet. But everything here is temporary, my friends. God is the only beginning and the ending of life. Everything else we hold on to, we will have to release it and give it up. Our true home is God's presence in our life. It doesn't matter if you're married or single, with children or no children, whether you live in a mansion or a hut, God is your home. Find your identity in him. The black family arrives to the promised land and exchanges the temporal for the eternal, and this has led to unhealthy families. This is what Yahweh wanted the children of Israel to understand. God would be with them. God was to be their main identity. God was their Lord, master, husband, wife, king, and priest. God was to be the first and everything else followed God. God was the author and the finisher of their faith. When, when we cease to be identified as the people of God, when we cease to identify ourselves as the people of God, 
we're going back into bondage. The Apostle Paul himself recognized how we can place our priorities in the wrong place. And you know, he gave a long lecture about husband and wife and sexuality. And, and then he inserted a little caveat, which he states is his own personal opinion in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is well for them to remain unmarried as I am. But if they're not practicing self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But, you know, this is talking about sexual fulfillment. God has designed us for much more than that. And Paul says, you know what? I'm quite happy to be single. I'm quite happy because I don't have the, the, the headaches and the encumbrances of being in a marriage relationship. Not that he's discounting marriage, but he's saying the one who's married have a more complicated life than the one who's single. Clearly the New Testament church was all about God. The church, neighbor, family in that order. This is a blessed situation. When we make first things first, it leads to fulfillment, and peace. This is the place that God wants us to be. Not caught up in this worldly system, living like Hollywood and emulating the things we see on the television and on the internet. Like the children of Israel, the black family has left Egypt only to become slaves to the lifestyle of the nations around them. Even the, 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 the priests, and the leaders indulge in all manner of lust and things and desires of the flesh and brought judgment on the people. The church family of, the Gal of Galatians, Paul wrote to them this and he said to them, for you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. You were called to freedom. Not only, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love, become slaves to one another. The church becomes slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If however you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. Galatians 5, 13 to 15. This ought to be our identity, church family. Black family, love, 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 love for one another, love for our neighbors so that we don't become deceived and be yoked to systems and schemes of this world. Can you imagine how much further ahead we would be if we lived out this commandment? You know, we too were once captives, but by the grace of God, we're free. We were once tortured, but our testing has now become our testimony. We're not the sum of our troubles. We are survivors. Like I discovered when I arrived to this country, I did not find peace and liberty until I placed God back as first place in my life. I had no true peace until I firmly planted my life in this church, the Planting Community Church. I made a decision as a child to serve God and to serve the church. And I discovered when I arrived in Canada that I had no peace, no fulfillment without the house of God. I understood and realized what David said when he penned these words. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And now here we are standing inside your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a well-built city. Its seamless walls cannot be breached. All the tribes of Israel, the Lord's people, make their pilgrimage here, here to the temple. They come to give thanks to the name of the Lord, 
as the law requires of Israel. Here stand the thrones where judgment is given, the thrones of the dynasty of David. Pray for the peace in Jerusalem. May all who love this city prosper. Oh, Jerusalem, may there be peace within your walls and prosperity in your palaces. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, may you have peace. For the sake of the house of the Lord, I will seek what is best for you. Oh, Jerusalem, what is best for the children of Israel was to find themselves in the place where they could seek God and go after God. And I want to say to us today, if our true identity is in Christ, we are free. We are free of a people. We are free to become all that God desires us to be. Today I want to speak to you like God spoke to the children of Israel via the prophets. It is my prayer that it would no longer be said, quote, that the fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. It is my prayer that the black family will be restored to its identity as a people of faith and a people of God. To see black families walk in obedience to God. It is God's will for us to live and thrive. In Ezekiel chapter 18, the prophet inquired of God. And at the end of the, of the chapter in verse 30, he said, Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, all of you according to your ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, otherwise iniquity will be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed against me. And get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, says the Lord. Then turn and live. Turn to Jesus now and live. Jesus says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. This is God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. God wants us to have fullness of joy, fullness of life. We will not find it in things. We will not find it in people. We will, they're only temporary things, they're toys. But we can afford to go back to the way it was. Like the children of Israel, we can fly back to Egypt if we want to. We can go back to the place of slavery and the things that kept us in bondage. Or we can believe that God is our home. Amen? Do you believe that God has called you to serve him first and foremost? If so, why not turn over everything in your life to God? Make it be, make it be, be God first, church second, and family last. Is there something or someone you're holding on to that is causing you to put your hand to the plow and look back? What might be keeping you from living out your true identity as a child of God? What is your idol that has replaced God in your life today? What are your priorities that come before the work of God? What is it that you need to let go in your life right now? that is keeping you hostage and incapacitated so that you and your family can't move forward. I know the challenge. I know the challenge of leaving the worldly stuff behind. But it's the very things that we're holding on to that will become our land of bondage. And so today I want to say to you, as God said to his people, why, O oh Israel, why do you want to die? I want you to live. Maybe you're in a situation right now where you're saying, I, I, I don't know who I am. I don't know what I'm about. I want you to know today that the only answer, the only answer in your life right now, 
that will give you the freedom that you desire and the freedom that we all collectively desire is to make God number one in our life and everything else a secondary. Let us pray. Father God, we want to thank you today that you are number one. Take control of our lives, oh God, so that we can relinquish all the things that we're holding on to in this life. Speak to someone today who have discarded their role in your church. Speak to someone today who don't find that, that, that they need to care about others and the mission of God to bring hope to the hopeless. Speak to us today. Raise up some Moseses and some Harriet Tubmans in our midst. And Father God, we don't want to put our hand to the plow and look back. Take our hands, Lord. Redirect our course. Redirect our lives. Help us, God, to lay it all down for you. We ask you this today. In the mighty name of Jesus, with thanksgiving. Amen. And amen. Hey, don't look back. Don't go back. Find out what God is calling you to. Perhaps you strayed from the place where he first found you. Make him your true identity. He has work for you to do. Respond. Go save somebody. In Jesus' name. Amen. I love you. Praying for you. And I pray God will bless you as you continue to yield your life to him and make him be your number one. Amen.